Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, May 15th, 2009. We've got episode 124 this week from Studio B in beautiful Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes of Radio Joe, and here with me in the studio is Environmental Annie, Ann Colecti. Thanks, Joe. Good afternoon. Good day, Annie. And, of course, at the controls, as always, is the wingman, Chris Boisel. Good afternoon. Good day, Chris. We've also got our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wild. He'll be joining us at halftime. The Z-Man is stuck at Connections. He's not going to be able to join us this week, but uh, he'll be back again next week. This week, we've got a, a great interview after the microband trivia question with Bob and Gail Brandis. We're going to talk a little bit about standards today. At halftime, we're going to have Brian McFarland of Legends Environmental Insurance come on, talk about some of the uh, sins of buying insurance. Then we'll go back to our interview with Bob and Gail. We'll finish it up with the roundup when we bring everybody back in. Check out that iaqradio.com website. We've been adding a blog every week after the show. You can check it out at iaqradio.com. Before we get started, we've got to thank those sponsors. Our newest advertiser is Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions is the leader in portable, mobile, PC-based indoor environmental monitors and reporting software. Check them out at wolfsensing.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com Indoor Environment Connections now available online. It's the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com John Don Products, a restoration abatement contractor shop at jondon.com all right, please thank those sponsors for us. They help uh, bring the show to you here every week. All right. Yeah, we hope uh, Cliff got rid of that cold and we can both get back in the studio at the same time and re-record that. But uh, before we uh, move on to Bob and Gail, let's turn it over to Environmental Annie for today's microband trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Congratulations to John Lepetere of MicroShield Environmental Services in Florida for correctly answering our previous microband trivia question. You can win a cool prize by out-competing IAQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the microband trivia question. Submitting your answer is easy. Simply email it to cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. Today's microband trivia question for Friday, May 15, 2009. One of the greatest overlooked achievements of civilization has been the establishment of a clean and safe drinking water supply. The crucial advance came in 1908 when, New when Jersey City, New Jersey, used this substance to disinfect its drinking water. Name that substance. Okay, thank you, Annie. And looks like we've got... Uh John from Florida's on the line. Good job, John, on the last one. Let's see if you can get that one for this week real quick. Let's get started with uh, Bob and Gail Brandis. Bob is the president of Occupational and Environmental Health Consulting located in Hinsdale, Illinois. 
Dr. Bob has a Ph.D. in environmental safety and health, a master's in public health, and dual undergraduate degrees in thermomechanical engineering and environmental engineering. He is also a registered professional engineer, a certified industrial hygienist, a certified safety professional, and a certified mold remediator. He has over 30 years of experience in safety and environmental health fields. He has worked as a corporate safety manager for major healthcare corporations for over 15 years, and he's been the president of his own environmental consulting firm since 1984. He's also well known on the speaking tour out there in the indoor air quality world. Gail is the director of training for services, uh, training services for occupational environmental health consulting. She has a master's degree in industrial safety management from Northern Illinois University and a BS in secondary science education from the University of Delaware. She's a good old school teacher. We love those school teachers, especially science teachers. She's also a certified safety professional, a certified indoor environmental consultant, and an Illinois state licensed asbestos inspector and management planner. She's also been involved in the safety and health consulting business for over 25 years now and is responsible for developing and conducting the safety training sessions for client companies in both English and Spanish on a wide variety of topics. The two of them have co-authored three books, Worldwide Exposure Standards for Mold and Bacteria, Post-Remediation Verification and Clearance Testing for Mold and Bacteria, and Global Occupational Exposure Limits for over 5,000, I think it's over 6,000 chemicals now, as I recall the latest edition, 6,000 chemicals. Let's, uh, I think we've got a little intro music for Bob and Gail. Day, Bob and Gail. Hello. Oh, we have to get you unmuted there. Hello, Bob. Hi, Joe. Hi, Joe. Hello. Good day. It's good, to, great to have you back. I, I was looking over the notes. We had you back on show fifty-three, and uh, way back in like on show three or something like that, with a bunch of other people. And it's uh, great to have you back. And I understand you have some interesting uh, new information for us today. Yeah. Excellent. Yes, we do. Well, the first thing I want to say is um, we are opening up a, uh, a new office in Las Vegas to serve the West Coast, and uh, we will be out in that office uh, in June. So uh, for our West Coast listeners, if they need any expertise, uh, we can now start serving the West Coast. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you for having us back. It's great to see the show uh, evolving and um, serving a, a larger base all the time. Excellent. Great to have you both. Uh, let's get started with, uh, we, we build the show today on discussion of HEPA filtration, but also more importantly, HEPA filtration within, or high efficiency filtration, I guess I should say, within portable types of uh, equipment. Let's, let's start a little background first with uh, HEPA filtration questions. I think most of our listeners have an idea that you know, what HEPA filtration is, but uh, Bob, maybe you could quickly give us a review of that, and sure. then we'll go from there. Well, portable high-efficiency air filtration devices um, started really with the asbestos industry going back into the mid-'80s, and it, it was a large fan uh, with a, a typical HEPA filter from a clean room attached to it. Uh, they were made into portable aluminum cabinets, and... There are hundreds of thousands of them that have been used for many years in asbestos abatement. Um, and when mold remediation became a big issue starting in the 90s, uh, similar negative pressure enclosures and HEPA air filtration devices were also used within that industry. And interestingly enough, when the asbestos industry started um, in 1990, they proposed uh, in, in their magazine, um, that a standard be developed for testing these portable high-efficiency air filtration devices. Well, that, that standard never, never really evolved until the Indoor Environmental Standards Organization, which is an affiliate uh, subsidiary of IAQA, 
uh, took that task on as a standard uh, oh, about a year ago, um, and they have now developed a standard called a fee standard or the Portable High Efficiency Air Filtration Device Testing and Validation Standard. Uh, that standard is going to be going out for public uh, comment and review um, starting in June, and it will be available on the IESO website. For people who want to review it and comment on it. Okay. Now, just to give some background on testing of these portable devices, um, the HEPA filters then are in portable devices. A typical HEPA filter is designed to remove 99.97% of particles uh, greater than 0.03 microns in, in diameter. And that is a a dimension that goes all the way back to the 50s when HEPA filters were first developed, and that was the size of pores that they found that leaked the most. So the testing method initially targeted uh, particles of a chemical called dioxyl phthalate, which you could make uh, fairly good uniform spheres at that size and then challenge the HEPA filter with that um, particle and then see how much was leaking through. That was very expensive equipment. Um, it's still actually used today in, in validating HEPA filters in clean rooms and, and drug and device manufacturing facilities. But it doesn't lend itself to in-field testing of portable devices that are really subject to a lot of wear and tear. And we're fortunate that in the last 10 years that portable particle counters have become available at, at a fairly reasonable cost. So we can do a similar type test, but now using portable particle counters. And that's what the standard uh, basically recommends. Bob, let me clarify a, a question that comes up from time to time. These HEPA filters, they filter 99.97% of particulate, obviously, at, is it at, uh, at 0 0.3 micrometers? That's typically the efficiency that is tested at because the dioxyl phthalate is that size. But if you were to look at particles that are larger than 0.3 microns, they typically will filter them out at a greater efficiency. What about smaller particles? Well, that seems to be somewhat debatable. There is evidence to show, and this is what the OSHA Training Institute um, research has shown, and they teach in their respirator classes at OSHA, is that even particles that are smaller than 0.3 microns tend to be filtered out at higher efficiencies as well. Now, that may seem counterintuitive, doesn't it? Yes. You would think the smaller stuff would get through. But what they have said is the particle research they have have looked at shows that particles that are smaller than 0.3 microns, generally speaking, are so lightweight that their movement is more controlled by their kinetic energy, their ambient temperature in the room, for example. And they behave more like a pinball, just bouncing around and are more easily captured by the filter media because they're not traveling straight through. They're, they're bouncing around. I so see. the point three micron is actually the most, according to their research, the most difficult size to filter out. It's aerodynamic enough to shoot through the filter um, more so than the smaller fibers and smaller particles. Uh, so it's kind of an interesting, uh, interesting concept. I guess the you know one of the big issues that we hear about now is nanotechnology and these very very small particles. Any any guess or any you know any theory on how well HEPA filters do on those? Well, there is there is a class um, for a standard HEPA filter, and if you look at the uh, the MERV rating table by ASHRAE, which is uh, standard fifty two point two. Um, a typical HEPA filter that most people are familiar with is a MERV class 15, but they have MERV classes that go all the way up to 20, and those are designed and targeted to go after nanoparticles. So they actually call them ultra HEPA filters. Rather than just HEPA filters, they're called ultra filters. Okay. okay. So there is a technology for that, and it is being used... Um, at Argonne, where they research nan nanoparticles, 
and one would hope it's being used in the industry where they actually manufacture or use nanoparticles for manufacturing. So the, the filter and the, and the system for rating it uh, is already out there. What about uh, viruses? What, what size range are we looking at? You know, there's been all this um, you know, media attention about the swine flu and all that. What about these viruses? What, what size are we looking at there? Viruses can, can range down to a few nanometers in length. Um, if you're, will a HEPA filter filter out viruses? Um, well, realistically, the evidence of, of uh, transfer of disease through an aerosol or, or air vector has shown that most of the viable viruses and bacteria are actually attached to particles in the air. You don't, act, you don't realistically aerosolize a virus particle, per se. Gotcha. So, so in effect, a good HEPA filter that really works as a HEPA filter uh, will tend to remove both, both viruses and uh, infectious microorganisms. Okay, great. I wanted but to get. It's got to really work as a HEPA filter. It's got to, and that's where we're headed. I wanted to get that yeah, background exactly. down first. Now, what uh, I understand the the concern is that once we put these filters within air filtration devices, some people refer to them as negative air machines. Some call them scrubbers. I guess it depends right. on the mode of use or into HEPA vacuums. What are the uh, problem? Why don't they perform as well once they're put into these pieces of equipment? Well, there, there's a number of reasons why they don't don't function as HEPA filters. Um, first of all, they get banged around, and in HEPA filtration, the seal is absolutely critical in getting proper performance. And if the cabinet gets kicked or it gets slightly bent or 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 gets shaken up, that seal gets broken, and you get leakage around the filter. Um, the, uh, the other reason is HEPA filters deteriorate. Um, the, the filter itself could get a slight tear in it because there's a lot of air pressure going through it, and we um, don't look for that. I mean, it's, we assume the HEPA filter is good, and then a year down the road you might replace it, but we don't actually do at least at this point in time, we don't really do validation to make sure that HEPA filter is working properly. Um, but I can tell you from my experience in the clean room industry, it's not unusual to find micro tears within HEPA filters, and they leak through them. Um, and then what they do in the clean room industry is they find it when they're testing, and they, they caulk that micro tear up with silicone caulk, and they continue to use the filter. We don't really have that capability right now with portable high-efficiency air filtration devices, but I would hope that manufacturers would redesign their units to allow end users to have that capability at some time in the future. To kind of repair the filter? Right, right. You'd be able to test it and repair it in place. Because they are very expensive. Um, and, if, and if you could design the units so you could better test them and validate them in place so they're repairable, that could save a lot of end users a significant sum of money. Okay. Now, Bob, Bob, let me mention real quick, we're having a little trouble with your volume there. If you can uh, speak up a little or get closer okay. to the phone, whichever, perfect. That's perfect. Okay. Yeah, I'll try and do it. Okay. okay, go ahead. Now, w one of the interesting things is, is this uh, feet device standard um, has been in draft uh, form for about a year now, and we have discussed it at uh, a couple IAQA conferences so at the last conference, we surveyed our audience of a couple hundred people, how many of them are starting to actually test their, their thief devices. And there are now about 100 contractors who are at the conference who are already testing their devices to make sure they, they work uh, sufficiently well for their intended purpose. So no. this, is, this is not, uh, I won't say a totally new issue. I mean, the industry is now aware of it. People are using it. And, and they're finding some interesting results. <laughs> um, you know, the, the fact is that most devices do not actually function at HEPA air filtration efficiency. Now, how can you tell, though, um, and this will get, I, I know we'll get into more detail on the standard itself, but right now, yeah. some of us are out, and I do this myself, I'll take a particle counter, I'll put it at the intake, check the amount of particulate at that area, and then at the exhaust and check it there, but I assume I've got to take some type of uh, 
take into consideration the fact that the HEPA filter is not the last area the air goes through. We've got a fan, we've got a, you know, a, a casing around that fan and a motor that it passes by in many cases after it goes through the HEPA filter. How do you right. take that into consideration? Well, that's, that's where it gets a bit complicated. Um, there is enough evidence out there that some motors, um, because they have carbon brushes, actually generate particulates um, in, in the fan motor itself. Um, the other thing is, after a unit is used for a while, and if it's not adequately cleaned in between, um, the fan motor and the blades and the cabinet and whatever else will have some particulates in it. And what happens is when the air comes through the HEPA filter, it actually re-entrains some of the dirt that's in the unit. So you end up with you know, good, not uh, zero particle counts coming out of the unit. And that's what makes it difficult to um, actually certify some units as, as having HEPA air filtration. Now, there are some that actually function, and they function very well, um, but you will find those to be more rare than the typical unit. More rare that they function to within. I mean, I've, I'll give you a ballpark idea. I've been able to test some units, and these are typically fairly new units, Bob, because I'm, I'm not out in the field as much as you are. I'm typically doing training. I'll have a, um, a training model there. It might be even a manufacturer's model that's off the floor. And, um, you know, we're, we're lucky if we get about 98% reduction. Is, is, that, right. is that pretty good? That actually is pretty good. Okay. If you can get 98% reduction, you're doing pretty good. Okay. Okay. That's been your experience that it's been, uh, that that's a pretty good number. Let me do this, too, while I'm, I'm thinking about it. I know Dr. Dietrich Wow is on the line here, and this is one of his favorite subjects. So I wanted to just unmute him for a moment here and, and see if he has a quick comment or a question. If Wingman, there you go. Hello, Dieter. I certainly do have a couple of comments. <laughs> okay. Good. With, uh, which I have been working my whole professional life, unbelievably. And uh, there are a couple of misconceptions out there that you know, absolutely drives me nuts. People believe that filtration is sieving or is straining like spaghetti through a colander or something like this. Filtration is completely different. It has absolutely nothing to do with it. And I'm looking at two books over here, uh, one written by the master of filtration, Dr. C.N. Davies. I bought the book for $11 in 1973. <laughs> <laughs> and it shows the filtration efficiency of small particles depending on pore sizes and so on. Um, when you talk about small particles, something like 0.5, 0.3 micrometers, and microns really means the same. I still prefer micrometers. Um, the overwhelming filtration uh, parameter is due to diffusion because these guys behave in the air and they will, uh, work with the uh, particles. If you really want to learn something about that one, you read Albert Einstein's treatise <laughs> on particle behavior, for which, by the way, he got a Nobel Prize. I think Gail, Gail did a pretty good job, though, of describing why those point threes um, well, are tougher to fill. Very, there is a very good reason for that. I'm looking at another book over here written by my former professor, uh, Ted Hatch and Paul Gross, and I'm on page 65. And we see that deposition in the human lung, and that's really what we are talking about when we are talking about filtration. We don't give a damn what happens to ants or elephants or what, and anything in between. But interestingly, the uh, filtration efficiency of the human lung at about 0 0.3, 0 0.4, 0 0.5 microns is at a minimum, at a minimum, so Mother Nature kind of protected us a little bit there because all those nasty things which uh, produce infections in humans are of that size. This is in in incredible uh, by itself. 
the next thing, and I'm shut up after this one, uh, it is incredibly difficult to produce 0.3 micrometer um, diameter particles with DOP. I worked with DOP generators, and uh, I think part of my gray hair has something to do with working on this for many, many months. <laughs> to get it really, and in, in those days it was even incredibly tough to measure 0.3 micron particles. So if somebody tells me that 99.99999% of the particles of the test aerosol were 0.3 microns, I, uh, I, I bet a couple of beers or a million dollars that it is not. <laughs> it is incredibly difficult to do. But uh, I can come back later on, but I just wanted to throw that one out. That filtration is not sieving. It is not straining. There are impaction, interception, and diffusion, <clears throat> not to mention uh, uh, electrostatic um, uh, um, parameters, which um, uh, uh, contribute to the ca catching of small particles. Excellent. Thank you, Dieter. And, and we'll bring you back in from time to time because I know this is one of your subjects. And Gail, <laughs> Let's have another one-hour show. All right. <laughs> Gail, Bob, any comments? Yeah. Yep. Bob? Yeah, Dieter is, is right on. that When you get down to these really small particles, um, sieve filtration is not what's going on. It's, it's a lot more complex. It's dealing with a lot of micro forces, a lot of really minute electrical forces and, and particle and cohesion and adhesion. Um, it is, it's, HEPA filters are different than that roughing filter that takes the boulders out of your air. It's, it's a really different phenomenon. Um, and that's, that, that's why if they leak, um, that, that leak is now a sieve, and you can get a lot of stuff past it. Okay. Bob, what we were um, talking about why they don't perform up to their you know, rating, or I think the filter may perform, but why the unit, the overall portable device doesn't perform up to its rating. And you mentioned that filters can break down. Can you help me a little bit with why OSHA changed the, I think it was a, a NIOSH change, actually, the rating system on filters that are on respirators, and they went with the no oil, oil-resistant, oil-proof, 95, 99, 100? I think the problem they were finding is that the material that the HEPA filters for respirators were made of, in some cases, did not resist degradation by organic aerosols in the air, such as oil mist, glycerin, and other types of organic aerosols would land on the filter and would actually start to eat away at the filter media. Okay. So they sent the respirator manufacturers back to the drawing board to come up with a filter that would be 99.97% efficient as they defined it, but would not be degraded be degraded by exposure to these organic aerosols. So that's where the P100 came into effect. It's oil proof, which means it can be used repeatedly in an oil mist environment. For example, you have an asbestos operations and maintenance uh, crew that work in a machine shop. Mm -hmm. They may use their respirator filter to do a glove bag, but the filter's not used up. But if they bag it up and put it in their locker for a month, and take it out, they have to know that it will not have been affected by any oil mist that they breathed in. They would need the P100 filters. Do we have the same concern with the portable devices? That's a good question. Bob, do you know? Uh, yes, you have the same concern, yes. Okay. Um, now, typically when you, if, let's say you have a clean room, um, you don't allow chemicals like that near your HEPA filters because they'll destroy them, and, and you can drop ten, twenty thousand dollars replacing the filters. So I, I won't say it's not a concern. The concern right now in a clean room is addressed because you don't allow chemicals like that to be in a clean room. Now, when we're doing asbestos remediation or mold remediation, we don't really think about that a lot. Um, but it is a concern, and, and if you're if you're doing asbestos or, or mold in, a, in an industrial building where chemicals are present or whatever, that's something you have to worry about. And, and, and we have, you know, 
overseeing projects where that is an issue, and we actually ended up using uh, air scrubbers to bring outside air into the building to supply the makeup air into our asbestos remediation uh, abatement area so we wouldn't screw up the filters with the, the oil mist that was in the building. Um, so, yeah, it is something you have to be cognizant of in if you're dealing with these things in a special environment. Okay. Well, let me, uh, let's do this. We got a, we're already at halftime. This has been uh, very interesting, and we're going to come back to it. We're going to go more into the standard and how you anticipate the standard may um, come out with respect to how we do these measurements. But first, we're going to take our halftime break and bring in uh, Brian McFarland from Legends Environmental Insurance and uh, do our insurance segment. So we'll be right back. Hello, Brian. Do we have you on the line? Yeah, you sure do, Joe. How you doing? Great, thanks. How are you? Uh, I'm good. I have to say the uh, halftime introduction music is much more my style than oh, the old music. All right. Now we got it. We found it. We were looking around today for something special for you, Brian. So what's new in the insurance world? Where are we? Number five, number six? You know, we actually have gone through, uh, through six of them, and today I want to discuss the, uh, a couple of terms that uh, you know seem to get confused, uh, and I get questions on every day. Uh, and the reason they get confused is because they're used in multiple ways in insurance. Uh, these terms are occurrence and claims, uh, or claims made. Uh, essentially, there's two, and this is a, you know not understanding these terms can certainly be uh, you know or is one of the uh, sins of buying insurance. Uh, the difference between an occurrence-made policy and a claims-made policy. On an occurrence-made policy, the insurance carrier that writes that policy is always responsible for a claim that arises from that insured period, even if you no longer carry insurance with them. So if you have, a, if you have insurance uh, with a company in 2009 and three years from now, and it's written on an occurrence basis, three years from now you have a claim that was from work done in 2009, Whoever that insurance carrier was then is going to be responsible for that claim. On a claims-made basis or policy form, the insurance carrier is only responsible for a claim uh, while they insure you during the period or during the policy period for that time that they insure you. If you move from one carrier to another, it's, it's real important that that other carrier, that new carrier, pick up the previous exposure period of the old carrier so that you know that you have coverage for any past incident. Uh, we do that through the process of what's known as a uh, retroactive date. And there's different coverages that are only available on a claims-made basis. These terms are again used uh, in insurance when we talk about deductibles or retention. Uh, an occurrence-based deductible uh, is a deductible that you're only going to pay once when there's a claim that's filed. Mm -hmm. So let's say you're a contractor or mold remediation contractor, you're doing a job at a, an apartment building, and uh, somebody claims that you didn't uh, remediate correctly, and now, uh, and now the, either the water issue wasn't completed or the mold wasn't completely discovered or cleaned up, and it's spread to multiple apartments. In that type of situation, you're going to have multiple claimants, uh, especially with condo building. Each, each condo owner is then going to file a claim. On an occurrence-based deductible, you're only going to pay that one. Okay. On a, on a, on a claims-based uh, claims deductible, you're going to pay a deductible or retention for each one of those, uh, each one of those claims. So there, there, although there's... there's the way we use the current and claims uh, made uh, is for two different things. One is based on the type of policy form and one is based on the type of deductible. But you can see that that can really impact the cost of the policy because in a current-based form and a current-based deductible, it's typically going to be more expensive than a claims-made-based form and, and a claims-made deductible. Uh, so understanding that and what your exposures are what type of work you're providing uh, should really be driving the, the type of uh, policy and claims or deductible you're looking for. Um, 
other other terms that get used quite a bit is uh, questions on is what's known as additional insured. Uh, an additional insured is a, a certificate holder or an endorsement holder that is insured for work that your company provides work for. Um, there's another term that gets confused with that, and that's additional named insured. Uh, the, the word named being added to that, and that would be another company actually being added to your policy or their work also being insured under your policy. Uh, so for general contractors, they may have additional named insured, additional name insured, including their subcontractors, so that their subcontractor's work is also covered on their policy or a standard uh, you know, remediation contractor or an indoor air quality consultant would have lots of additional insured endorsements that protect the people that they're providing work for for the work that they perform. Uh, so any questions that anybody has uh, on those issues, uh, you know, whether or not you're a uh, Legends client or not, feel free to give me a call, and I'm happy to uh, go through them with you. Okay. What's that number, Brian? Uh, it is 1-888-261-9298. Very good. Uh, interesting as always. We appreciate you uh, stopping in. We'll see you in a couple weeks or hear from yeah, you. I appreciate you, sir. All right. All right. Thank you, Brian. Let's thank those sponsors one time real quick here, Wingman. Our newest advertiser is Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions is the leader in portable, mobile, PC-based indoor environmental monitors and reporting software. Check them out at wolfsensing.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com Indoor Environment Connections now available online. It's the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com John Don Products, a restoration abatement contractor shop at jondon.com all right, please thank those sponsors for us. They help uh, bring the show to you here every week. Okay, let's go back with uh, Bob and Gail, and uh, we'll bring Dieter in here in just a moment, but let's get back to Bob. Bob, and Environmental Annie has a question for you. Yeah, who is IESO? Uh, IESO is the Indoor Environmental Standards Organization. Uh, it's part of the uh, unification um, group of organizations that uh, occurred with uh, Indoor Air Quality Associations about three years ago. And IESO is an ANSI-accredited standards development organization. Uh, currently, IESO is working on uh, 10 different standards. 10 standards, Bob? Uh, you got to pick up a little bit on the volume. I'm oh, sorry. Ten? Sure. Uh, they're working on 10 different standards for the indoor environment. Uh, one is um, assessment of residential mold. Another one is um, assessing mold in educational facilities. Uh, the, the portable high efficiency air filtration device standard, which is going to be the first one that's going to come out. We're also looking at a standard for electromagnetic radiation in indoor environments. Electromagnetic radiation. Hmm. Okay. Right. Hmm. There, there is a. Um, a lot of uh, EMF standards, uh, both in the EU and Russia, and, and they're very good standards. And we we don't have those in the United States. And, and basically, this committee is is designed to take those standards, put them into a form that's usable, and um, make it into a U.S. standard. Okay. And then we're also working with the um, uh, Restoration Industry Association (RIA) to. Um, uh, develop standards on cleaning of rugs um, and cleaning of ductwork, and those two are coming along. They're very good standards. That um, ductwork one, that's specific to fire. Yes. Fire restoration. I know and that's one that's damage, yes. close to my co-host's, um, you know, heart. There, he likes to. He feels we don't spend enough time, um, and 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 there's not enough information on proper cleaning of of fire damaged, uh, you know building materials, etc. And it's very complex. Yes. Yes, it is. And, and and he seems to feel, and I don't know if you agree, that it's probably as much of a health hazard, if not more of a health hazard, than 
some of the other uh, areas like mold remediation where we have pretty significant standards. I don't know how you feel on that, Bob, Gail. Well, chemicals that, uh, that are left over from uh, combustion, depending upon what was involved in the fire, can both leave significant odors and can cause people breathing difficulties. Um, and trying to clean that stuff up without leaving chemical residues can be a real challenge. So, yeah, fire, fire restoration is not a simple thing to do. Okay. Were, were there a couple others that you still – I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt uh, halfway through. Yeah, there's a through. couple other ones. One is a standard for – uh, another one is for collecting dust samples for allergen assessment. And an, another one, very similar to the, the thief standard, is a standard for testing portable uh, dehumidification devices. Oh, dehues. Okay. Great. Yes. Great. We've got a lot of uh, restoration people that listen. Yeah. And, and we're, of course, always looking for people to get involved and join our committees. Um, and if you'd like to do that, uh, you know, visit the IEL website or contact uh, Christy Lee, who's the Secretariat at ISO, and we'll be happy to uh, welcome you on and, and give you work to do. Well, thanks to uh, John in Florida. He's posted up the um, ISO website on our little chat room here. It's uh, www.indoorstandards.org, for those of you that aren't on the uh, watching online here. Yes. Okay, well, Bob, let's let's get into the FIF standard a little bit more, the Portable High Efficiency Air Filtration Device uh, Standard. Um, where are you with this standard? I realize that you've got a subcommittee that uh, have they completed their work, and now it's with the Standard Development Committee, or yeah, the standard the committee has completed their work, and the standard has gone through consensus body review, and that has been finished. So it is now going through a final edit and then it will be released for public comment um, somewhere around June 1st. How big uh, is the I'm sorry. How big uh, is that consensus body, Bob? And are, aren't uh, we you... Have, we have 23 people on the consensus body. 23. And is there a chairman? Are you the chairman now? Or? Yep, I am the chairman this year. Yeah. You are the chair. Alright. Well, we've got a scientist in there anyway. That's a good good thing and how is the uh, ISO coming along with respect to these other standards are you starting to see some I know there's been a little anticipation I, I used to be on the IAQA board there was a lot of concern that things weren't moving along fast enough we were spending a lot of member money on these standards do you see the log jam kind of breaking real soon here um, I, I think the, the fee standard is going to be the first one out of the box and it's going to, um, you know, set up a lot of, of um, measures within the organization on how to get standards out to the public and make the public aware of IESO and what it can do. Um, after that, uh, the next one out of the box, I think, is going to be the fire restoration standard with IRA. Great. Um, and then probably, I from. From what I know, I think the, the cleaning of rugs uh, will probably be the next one after that. The school committee and the residential uh, committee—they're uh, moving along, but they're—they're they're not as uh, far ahead as these other two committees. No, Bob. I—I I, I think we'll have one standard by the end of this year, and then early on next year we'll probably have another two or three. Well, some people may be confused because you know it's—it's it's been through the consensus body, which is the highest level at. IESO under the ANSI standard is my understanding, but now it has to go out for peer review or public review. Is that accurate? That's correct. Okay. And and have you had input from manufacturers at all during the standard writing process, or are you expecting um, that during the um, during the peer review or public review? Uh, that's mainly going to occur during the public review, but we certainly did talk to manufacturers during the standard development phase. Um, so they are aware of it. Uh, they have raised some concerns, um, particularly this issue of um, particle addition by motor brushes and other things. And the standard is split into um, two parts. One is, of course, the standard. And the second part is a, is a reference guideline. And it goes into detail, it goes into theory, and, and it, you know, how do you test, and, what do you, and how do you add the results, and how do you average them, and, what if it doesn't work, and where can you use different types of filters that perform at different levels? 
so it, it's it's uh, similar in some respects to how IICRC does their standards, where they have a standard, and then they have a how-to uh, reference part in the back, and and that's part of the the uh, format that IESO wants to have with their standards is we have a standard part which is technical, and then we have a how-to as a reference document. And within the fee standard reference document, there is um, actual uh, sample test data for large HEPA filters, small HEPA filters, uh, shop-type vacuums, and then portable vacuums. And with each of those, the level of performance decreases uh, for whatever reason it is. Um, and so people will have some actual real hands-on data, so when they get their numbers, they won't be all that surprised. Wait, can you, uh, all right, now you mentioned the list, and I want to just review the list for the listeners because after you mentioned the list, you said they kind of go down in efficiency. Is that accurate? That's correct. Based on the list. Could you start again from the top and work your way down? Sure, sure. The the ones that that a lot of people are familiar with are are the big HEPA filters that, I shouldn't be calling them HEPA filters, the the big high-efficiency devices. (laughs) Okay. NAMs, the NAMs, the air scrubbers that move about 2,000 psm. Okay. Those are the large ones, and those you will find test probably the best of all the equipment. Okay. And then you go to the the mini NAMs, the ones that move about 1,000 psm, um, and they don't perform as well as the larger ones. And then from there you go to the shop vacuum size. Um, you know, that's, that's two or three feet high. It's a it's a, it's a steel case or aluminum case, wet-dry uh, wet type vacuum. Okay. Uh, next, next level down. And then you go to the next one is the, the little portable vacuum cleaner type devices that are, they still roll on the floor, but, you know, they're smaller than a shop vac, but they're, they're very similar in size to a, like a, one a vacuum cleaner that people have in their homes. And typically they're a dry one-gallon type like Gail dry mentioned. Yeah. Okay. And then the, the last device is these uh, portable vacuum cleaners people wear on their back. Oh, each, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. With each one of them, small, the HEPA filter gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So that may have something to do with its, its decreased level of performance. That's interesting. It's kind of counterintuitive when you think about the fact that the level of performance seems to decrease as the filter is not as well seated, I guess. I don't know if that's the right term. But the bigger ones seem to work better than the smaller ones, which you would think would be able to, you'd be able to get a tighter fit with. Um, well, what I, what I would say is that the bigger ones have a stronger case and tend to deflect less under use conditions. And as you get to smaller and smaller ones, you know, that thing on that guy's back is bouncing around like crazy, and, and same thing with the little vacuum cleaner, it's bouncing around on the floor. That may have something to do with why they have decreased performance uh, as they get smaller. Okay. But it, I, it, I think it also has something to do with the filter media itself. The media itself on the smaller yeah. ones, okay. Okay, yeah. we got to keep the volume up, guys. Environment, environmental yeah. Annie has another question here. Yeah, we were talking about standards, and I'm curious, what type of background does a person need to help out with the development of these standards? Um, for IESO? Um, yes, yes. Actually, pardon me? Yes. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's good if you have a technical background, but it isn't absolutely necessary. The consensus body and the committees are supposed to be made up of people from the public as well as as technical people from the industry. Uh, though most of the people who who work directly on a standard, uh, generally you like to have those be people who are expert within that industry and that technology. Uh, but we we welcome anybody who wants to be on a committee and, and who wants to uh, you know work with it and, and add comments. Uh, so it's it's not limited to just technical people. And and we'd also I I assume you want those people that are out in the field using this type of equipment to uh, jump right. on board. Absolutely, yeah. Hands-on users um, add a lot of um, you know, real perspective and what about this and what about that. And they know the failure modes that, that sometimes the people who develop the equipment don't really know about because they've not been in the field using it. 
Okay. Bob, I have two quick ones, and then we'll go to our roundup. Um, one is, until we have this standard, what what general guidelines can you give those who are already trying in some way to test their equipment with respect to, you know, how do you hold your particle counter? Do you hold the the particle counter straight at the exhaust? Do you hold it to the side? How far away from the exhaust? Um, things of that nature. Just some general rules of thumb so that we can, uh, you know, get some ideas out to people on how they can do it until the standard comes out. Yeah. When you're, when you're doing your particle counting, you try to have your uh, particle counter um, in the direction of flow. You want to have that air blowing into the particle counter. Okay. Um, it, it gets into this issue of isotetic sampling, and, and the, the infield testing really showed that that isn't a big issue. Um, but if, if you get the air directed at the particle counter, it works better, and, and you should try and test as close to the discharge admission as possible because you don't want to have re-entrainment of particles from the air that's around the device. So the closer you are to the device uh, exhaust or discharge air, the better your measurement's going to be. Okay, now what about on the intake side? The intake side, you can just measure what the ambient is in your room. Okay. Uh, you, know, you could be a couple feet away from the, the intake to the unit because um, that's what's going in. Um, and since unless you're right next to it, the airflow won't significantly <clears throat> affect anything. You know, as long as you take it within a couple feet of, of the intake to the, the filter device, that's good enough. And not as important on what direction you hold your particle counter or anything like that. That's correct. Okay. Now, one other thing, too, I think is important for people to know is that since we found that quite a high percentage of devices do not exhaust air that we would consider to be HEPA efficient, that we assumed and estimated that we would have quite a few devices that we're not HEPA. So what are we going to do with them? So in the standard, and again, this is something we want people to comment on, is we have looked at ratings that are less than 99.97, but can still be utilized in certain, in certain tasks and aspects of a remediation project. And that's where we go into grading things that is, that's less than a HEPA, but still something that can be utilized. So we've incorporated MERV ratings for some of these other devices and specified what type of work can be done with a particular MERV rating of the unit. So, for example, if you were in a hospital using your air filtration device as a scrubber and just, you know, the exhaust was um, exhausting right back into the room, you would want one of the ones that tested out the best. That's absolutely correct, yeah. Okay, that, and then... And if it's not HEPA, you would have to ensure that it exhausts to outside the building. Okay, so one that wasn't testing as well, you could use to exhaust outside of a building in, in a typical residential mold remediation, let's say. Or if you have a HEPA vacuum and it's going to be used inside a containment, it's not as critical for that to be HEPA rated because the exhaust is going into a controlled space. Okay versus an O&M operations and maintenance person rolling it into an uncontained room to suck up some debris. And that, that air will exhaust into an uncontrolled room. That type of act you would hope would be rated better. That's, it sounds like it's really an important standard that we, we really need to have this. It's been missing a long time. And I want to uh, thank both of you for, I know you've done a great deal of work on this standard. and. And I know that um, it's been something near and dear to you, and, and it sounds like we're coming a long way. Let's go to what we call our roundup here. We've got about five minutes left. We're going to bring uh, Dr. Dieter back on. We're going to go once back around the horn here and see if there's any final questions. Dr. Dietrich Wow, any comments or questions? 
Uh, yeah, I think in the very beginning, Bob made a very good uh, uh, comment. You, know, you can have the finest HEPA filter in the world, and if you don't mount it in your filtration device, negative air machine, whatever you want to call it, uh, it, it's 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 not performing at that 99.9 plus uh, uh, efficiency. And I have seen a couple of machines, and I wasn't very happy with these brackets onto which that HEPA filter is screwed. Yeah. Typically, the HEPA filter has what a quarter of an inch or something like this um, foam seal, and it has to be compressed. I have seen internal brackets onto which this uh, filter is being mounted, and there were uh, welding spots in there. I think these things ought to be on a grinding machine and ground flat and then installed. Uh, like I said, if you have the best uh, filter and you have leakage, uh, it's not, yeah, you're throwing away money and you have a false uh, sense of um, uh, security. And uh, the other thing, and I mentioned that before, just because a particle is very small, it can be caught by um, capture uh, parameters uh, which are different from the pore size. In other words, I can catch a 0.1 micron particle very easily in a pore that is one micrometer in diameter even though the pore is 10 times larger than the particle. The particle will be caught due to diffusion, not uh, straining. And I guess I have the bracket, I have the seal, I have all of that. Yep, I think I'm done. You know, Dieter, that's a great point because um, I mentioned the manufacturers and, you know, this type of standard may be the thing that gets them to look at that and uh, make those types of changes. Well, uh, Joe, you know me. I'm semi-retired. I'm available. I answer all telephone calls and emails. Fortunately, I haven't gotten <laughs> I get these damn emails from somebody I'm really not interested in, <laughs> uh, like we all do. And, you know, I won, what, several hundred million dollars on the Internet. <laughs> Just today again, huh? All right. Oh, yeah. Today I won again. Yeah, one was seventy-five million dollars, and the other one ten million dollars. All right. Uh, no, I think I think common sense and uh, some very basic engineering thinking uh, will help us out to to evaluate and um, know what these devices uh, uh, will do. I don't know that there are too many schools left. In the, in the country, and I don't know who teaches all these uh, filtration mechanisms um, and aerodynamic equivalent diameters and, and, and all of that. I know a former friend of mine teaches it uh, down in Florida, and certainly another good friend of mine in, in uh, Chicago, but uh, uh, I think we are missing a couple of things on a basic... Uh, physics, uh, which I haven't seen being taught in quite some time. All right. Well, Dieter, I've got a couple comments I want to run past um, from listeners here. One is that, and I think it's a good comment, we should mention that the Restoration Industry Association, who is working in conjunction with the Indoor Environmental Standards Organization, developing two standards, one on fire damage restoration in uh, HVAC or duct work, and the other on uh, rug cleaning is the former Association of Specialists in Cleaning and Restoration. Some of our listeners may know them better as ASCAR. And the other one was that um, there's kind of a question here, Bob, on HEPA-like filters. Uh, oh, so yeah. <laughs> what, what, what exactly are HEPA-like filters? Um there isn't a good answer to that question, Joe. I have a good answer. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to go out on a long... <laughs> I don't know whether I should say that, but I say it. The HEPA-type filters are like a very, very nice condom that you buy 
There's only a tiny little hole in it. <laughs> I uh, I think now you will never ever forget it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dieter. As only you can put it. All right. <laughs> Let's go over to Environmental Annie. She's got another final question. I'm just curious about the ISO. What industries are these standards directed to? Um, ISO's uh, philosophy mm -hmm. is it's trying to limit its standards uh, to things that apply to the indoor environment. So if, if, it's, if it's a fire in a house or whatever, that's an indoor environment. Mm -hmm. uh, if it's a EMS in, in, inside of an environment uh, where people are, that's, again, it's an indoor standard. Um, they're not trying to target things outside the building or building envelopes or anything like that. It's strictly the indoor air quality area. Okay. okay. How, do you see this FIF standard affecting or what other groups you know i know we've got the water damage people they, they would be affected by this we've got the mold remediation folks i'm assuming the asbestos abatement folks the lead abatement folks um what other any others that i'm leaving out there bob gail yeah there is one other well more than one other um these hepatic devices are used uh in the radiation drug pharmaceutical industry Okay. They're used in uh, hazardous waste cleanup. And mercury and other things. Yeah, used to clean up mercury. Wow. Um, so they're used in handling a lot of toxic substances when you're machining beryllium. Um, yeah, and, and all of those things uh, or industries are impacted by this standard. All right. Well, I get, uh, since I'm the host, I get a couple here on the roundup. Uh, one is I wanted to mention that for those of, uh, that are interested, uh, Bob and Gail will be doing a uh, full-day presentation. I think the morning is on the FIF standard and the afternoon is on something else. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we're, we're going to be um, um, in um, Orange County with the Irvine Indoor Air Quality Chapter on July 11th. And we'll be doing a, a, a full-day seminar. The morning will be on post-remediation verification. PRV, and okay. The afternoon will be on um, the FEE standard and hands-on testing of uh, portable high efficiency devices. Very and good. The cost for the full-day seminar is under $100. Um, it'll be at the Embassy Suite in, in Santa Ana. Um, and it should be a really interesting day. Um, this will be the first time where... The FIF standard and hands-on FIF training is done for an IIQA session. I believe that we are sharing the day with some folks from MLAB, possibly. Okay. And I MSL. guess you could probably get information on that on the IAQA website, uh, or at least how to contact that chapter. That's the Irvine chapter yeah. in California. Irvine, California chapter. Yep. Yeah. Go to uh, IAQA.org, find out how to contact them, and I'm sure they can help you uh, get registered. Last but not least, is there anything we left out, anything you'd like to add? Uh, well, let's start with Bob and then go to Gail, uh, or should I go ladies first? Whichever you'd like. Oh, Bob can go first. Okay. <laughs> um, I don't know how much time we got left, Joe. We're about done, actually. We've got to, but oh, we're done. I'm okay. certainly yeah, happy to hear. I'm... If you got one that really you want yeah, to get out, please do. Yeah, the, the, when you first start testing these portable devices, uh, you're going to be surprised by the results. Um, the, the thing I, I would caution people is don't automatically assume that this is causing a health risk or, or whatever. Um, this is a, a new technology that is allowing us to do our jobs better. It doesn't necessarily mean we didn't do our jobs in the past, but when you're in a high-risk environment, a hospital or, or a long-term care facility or, or a daycare for children, you want to make sure that uh, the HEPA equipped devices you're using actually perform well because you just don't want to cause a risk and now you have the tool to minimize that risk. And, and don't get too terribly upset if your machine doesn't test out at 99% because very few do. Yeah. All right, Gail? Um, gosh, I, can't, I think Bob pretty well summed it up. All right. Bob, and if people should, should get out there and start, if they don't have the um, particle counters, they can easily be rented um, and uh, use them on, on jobs. IEC should use them. The contractors who have the equipment should use them. Uh, and I think will help progress the whole field. Yeah, I think that uh, it's, an, it's an area that both contractors and IEPs will get more involved with. So 
We really, well, especially uh, when they work in the hospital or, or other industries. Absolutely. Schools even, I can think, you know, schools or uh, child care facilities and uh, hospitals, all those different areas. I think this is a great, uh, very, very good thing you're doing, and we appreciate it. All right. Well, let me uh, let me wrap things up by saying that uh, the Z-Man will be here next week, and uh, he's working on a really interesting guest. We haven't final, we don't have quite final confirmation yet, but we're working on it, and uh, if we get it, we'll put that out in an email soon. Before we go, I want to thank Environmental Annie, uh, the wingman Chris Boisel for assisting me, uh, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, and of course, Bob and Gail Brandis for joining us here for the hour. We really appreciate having you. Hopefully, you'll be back again. And uh, more importantly, and most importantly, I guess, is the growing group of loyal listeners out there. Uh, we had quite a group online here today. Thanks so much. We appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you again next Friday for the next edition of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.